Turn, if you would, to the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew. This is Luther Dixon. For those of you who don't know, my son's name is Luther Douglas. He goes by Douglas. My name is Luther Kyle, but I go by Kyle, obviously. My father's name was Luther Taylor, and he went by Luther. His father's name was Luther Taylor and went by Luther or Coach Scarborough or Big Dad. His father's name was Luther Dixon, and this is Luther Dixon. So he's beginning to wake up, so I'm going to give him away here so we can do our lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Two weeks ago, we started chapter 27. We actually had started the week before, but we kind of backtracked a little bit, and we talked about Judas and his... Um, remorse over what he had done. And as I left last week, or two weeks ago, I was, I had this thought in my head that I may have been misunderstood, even though I worked very diligently to not be misunderstood. And today I had a question regarding the discussion with, about suicide because Judas killed himself. And I prefaced the lesson two weeks ago, talking about the fact that we are going to talk about what was the classical Catholic position, but that they don't necessarily hold it today. And the classical Catholic position is that suicide is a mortal sin. If you commit suicide, you are not going to heaven. End of story. But even the Catholics today will acknowledge that with our new understanding of mental illness and things like that, we don't really know the state of the will of the person who commits suicide. And so we trust in God's grace to deal with those individuals. We trust in God's grace that if God had saved them, since we are not Catholics and we do not believe you can lose your salvation... If God had saved them at some point in time and their mental issues, depression, whatever it is, had overcome them, we still trust in the grace of God. Now, having said that, I do believe that Judas, that Judas himself turned his back on the grace of God. Because if Judas had gone to Jesus, I am convinced that Jesus would have forgiven him in the same way that Jesus forgave Peter for denying that he knew Christ. So having turned his back on the grace of God, I would say that Judas is in a bad way. Now, we then had a discussion, if you remember, I cannot judge the condition of a person's heart. All I can do is look at the external behavior based on the word of God, and we as a church can make judgments. But... We trust in the mercy and grace of God to deal with people, okay? So, last lesson, we put Jesus on the cross. We had a brief discussion about the fact that the different 
Gospels present different aspects of the crucifixion, and we're really only dealing with the lesson in the book of Matthew. So, we'll pick up today in verse 32. No, we'll pick up in verse 46. That's where we are. 46, 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, uh, lama sabatne, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, it is in the afternoon. Remember, the Jewish day starts at, what, 6 a.m., and they go in three-hour increments, and so you can figure out where we were. Later in the day... Jesus is about to die, and he says these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this has caused a lot of interesting discussions throughout history. What does it mean that Jesus, who is God, is telling God, Why have you forsaken me? To get some understanding of this, let's go back to where this verse came from. If you would, turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22 is a song of lament. It is fascinating that, you know, we sing a lot of psalms and we think, we begin to think that the psalms are all about how great life is. And we overlook the fact that a goodly number, if not half of them, have to do with the struggles of life. So, Psalm 22 is a song of lament by David. It says so in the introduction to it. And it begins in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in this psalm, there are several passages that very clearly point to Jesus Christ. Okay? It talks about them uh, dividing up his garments. It talks about them mocking him. But there is some speculation that David, when writing this, is not necessarily prophesying, although he does. What he is doing is lamenting the fact that here I am, and I who am not doing anything bad right now, that comes later in his life, I not doing anything bad and being persecuted by other people. And this is a thing we can all relate to, right? We can all relate to the fact that we at different times are persecuted because of, well, who knows why? It's just that bad things do happen to reasonably good people. Notice I put that in there, right? But when we look at Jesus, we can take out that reasonable part of the reasonably good people because Jesus was without sin. He never, ever committed a sin that required a sacrifice to make the payment for that sin. So whereas David can lament, why are people after me? And in fact, it isn't just why are people after me? Why is it that God himself has rejected me? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, so do not raise your hand. 
How many of you at some point in your life have believed that God is not on your side? For whatever reason, in this situation that I'm in right now, God is somewhere else. I would suspect that most of us are old enough to have been in situations like that and we're embarrassed to tell people. But here is Jesus Christ, the perfect human being, the perfect God-man, dying on the cross, and he yells out with a loud voice, God, why have you forsaken me? Question. Had God forsaken Jesus? And that, my friends, is a theological conundrum. Adam and Eve walked in the garden, and it says they walked and talked with God. I mean, they just walked with him. Hey, God, what's up? Hey, do you see what I did today? Yeah, that's cool, great, wonderful. They walked and talked with God until they violated the command of God and were separated from God. And then they went and hid. The scripture is all about the separation of Remember that word, because we're going to get back to it in just a moment. The separation that sin has caused between God and us. Now, Jesus had no sin. But what did he do on the cross? He took our sin. Remember that whole idea of the scapegoat? in the Old Testament? It's kind of weird. We use that word today, and I'm not sure we oftentimes know what it means. They would have the sacrifice, and they'd have two goats. One of them, they were going to slit his throat, and one of them, they would place their hands on, and they would put the sins of the people on that goat and let it go. It was the scapegoat. Jesus is hanging on the cross... And he has absorbed the sins of humanity. And God God turns and looks the other way. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are some who speculate that Jesus is telling this to the people so that they know why he's doing what he's doing it. Because notice what it says. He says, my God. He's not denying the relationship that he has with God. He's just acknowledging that having absorbed the sins of humanity, that the rejection of God is upon him instead of us. More on that in just a moment. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. His phrase that he said, Eli, Eli, which happens to be in Aramaic, by the way, you can understand why you might think he's saying, Elijah, Elijah. 
Why would he be calling for Elijah? Well, we know why they might think that he's calling for Elijah. We are told in the Old Testament that Elijah is going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. So the people are sitting there going, he's calling for Elijah. He wants Elijah to come down and rescue him. Now, having worked our way through the entire book of Matthew, we know that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He came to prepare the way. Now they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And he said, no. But Jesus said, if you're waiting for Elijah, there he is. He has come to prepare the way for the Messiah, me. So the people are confused. They still want a Messiah. They really do. They want Elijah to come down, pull him off the cross, and zap the Romans. We've said over and over again, over and over again, we've said what the Jews want is a Messiah who's going to come, sword in hand, armies behind him, drive the Romans out of the land, and restore the Davidic kingdom in all its pomp and glory. And they didn't recognize the cross as being part of that story. That wasn't their image of what the Messiah was supposed to do. So they were waiting for the Messiah, which meant they had to have Elijah. And what happened? (coughs) Jesus died. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The person who had not committed any sin in his entire life, who did not suffer from the edemic curse of a sin nature that leads us to commit sin, which makes us guilty, which makes us, okay, you know the pattern, right? The one man who had never committed a sin died. I said two weeks ago, there's two questions that we need to address. One of them is, why did he have to die? And the second one is, why did he have to be resurrected? Next week, we'll deal with the, why did he have to be resurrected? We gave some discussion two weeks ago about why he had to die. But we're going to have more of that in just a second. Let's keep reading. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to tear that curtain in half. What is this curtain? You remember, Moses goes up on the mountain. He's leading the nation of Israel out of captivity to the promised land. And he goes up on the mountain to receive instructions from God. And he comes down, and we all know about the Ten Commandments. He has tablets, stone, finger of God wrote on there, comes down, smashes them because the people are sinning, goes back up, gets copy number two. Okay? We all know about the Ten Commandments. 
But he came down with a whole lot more. He also came down with a lot more instructions on how they were to conduct their life. We had dietary laws. We had who you could sleep with and who you couldn't. We had what to do if you had a skin disease. Lots of rules. In addition to that, God gave him very detailed instructions about how to build the place of worship. If you remember, it's been three or four years now, we actually went through the book of Exodus. And at the time, I made the comment that, you know, here we are, we're going from captivity to the promised land. If God's going to give you any information, what would you want God to tell you? Well, I know what my answer is. I would want God to tell me how to make a tank. (laughs) Then I would make multiple tanks, and I would go into the promised land, guns blazing, and I would just wipe them out. Good plan, right? I would want some instructions that would allow me to destroy my enemies, because I'm going to go have to fight giants. But what God gives them are instructions on how to worship Him. Why? Because He's going to tell them, if you worship me correctly, I'll take care of the giants. You won't need a tank. I'll take care of them. So He gives them very detailed instructions. In fact, they're almost too detailed. If you've ever read it, you go, how many more descriptions of poles made out of Acadia wood and coated with gold do I need to read? And it gets worse than that because he comes down from the mountain and he explains to the head carpenter guy who's going to build all this stuff how to build it. And guess what? He goes through all the instructions again, every one of them. In the midst of this place of worship, big tent, Courtyard, smaller tent, smaller tent, inside the smaller tent is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is not that big a place. Most people think that if you you looked at it, it's probably about a 15-foot cube. 15 by 15 by 15. And that's the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, they put... The Ark of the Covenant. That's what was in there. And between it and the outside world was a curtain. Now, you and I think of curtains as things that we have on our windows, right? Teresa makes wonderful curtains. Don't come ask her to, though. I won't let her. (laughs) She makes wonderful curtains, and they're about what? This thick. They're kind of flimsy. This curtain is... Wrapped and wrapped and wrapped, and then it's folded over. The curtain itself is probably about 30 feet long. You wrap it over, and it's probably about six inches thick by the time all is said and done. What is the purpose of that curtain? The purpose of that curtain is to keep the people away from God. The glory of God is in that Holy of Holies. That's why they called it the Holy of Holies. And the people can't go in there. 
then who goes in there? The high priest once a year. Why? To offer a sacrifice for himself and then on behalf of the people. So once a year, the high priest with a cord wrapped around his foot so they can drag his dead body out if they need to. You're entering the presence of God. You're entering the presence of God. And he goes in and he offers a sacrifice for the people because the people can't. The people cannot enter the presence of a holy God. Fast forward. We are at the death of Jesus. There's a temple. There's not a tabernacle. The tabernacle was a mobile temple because they carried it around. They had very detailed instructions of how you packed it up. They had very detailed instructions of who was allowed to carry what. It was very important. But we now have a temple. But remember, we've said this Numerous times, this is not the temple that Solomon made. The temple that Solomon made has been destroyed. The Babylonians came in, tore it to shreds. Herod, the Roman governor, in order to build up goodwill with the people, rebuilt it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was rebuilt after they returned from captivity. But it wasn't. Anyway, anyway, Herod says, let's clean it up and make it big. Okay, you're right. It was rebuilt earlier by Ezra and Nehemiah. One built the wall and one built the temple. Herod has made it a magnificent structure. And there's a holy of holies inside the temple. Now, I asked my expert this morning, Don, was there an ark in the Holy of Holies of Herod's temple. And I don't know. We kind of flipped a coin on it. Don's suggestion is that they had made a replica because the old one has disappeared. You know, right? Google on Ark of the Covenant and find all the theories about what happened to it. It's really cool, by the way. And no, Indiana Jones didn't find it, and it's not in a warehouse somewhere in the middle of the desert. The book of Maccabees tells us that the priest took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it. That they took it out into the desert and put it in a cave somewhere. And to this day, there are people looking for that cave, trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. There's a church in Ethiopia who says they have it, but you can't see it. Which reminds me of an old Monty Python joke, but we won't go there. (laughs) My personal opinion, and notice I said opinion, is that God just took it home. That's my opinion, okay? We don't know what happened to it. But Herod's temple has a holy of holies, it has a curtain. One day a year, the high priest goes in and makes the sacrifice. Jesus dies. It says he gave up his spirit. Jesus, as a human being, died. 
and that curtain was torn. Now, six inches of fabric torn from 15 feet up in the air downward. Why is that significant? What was the purpose of the curtain? To keep sinful man from entering the presence of a holy God. What was the purpose of Jesus' death? To allow us, as sinful human beings, to enter the presence of a holy God. Why did Jesus have to die? So that you and I could enter the presence of a holy God. Every year, the high priest entered and offered the sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews tells us he had to do it the next year. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year. And this goes on for thousands of years. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for a fallen humanity, did it once. And doing it once, that separation between God and man was torn apart. From the top to the bottom to demonstrate that it wasn't a human effort, if a human was even capable of doing it, to show that God has removed that barrier. We learn all about that in the book of Hebrews. I would recommend you read it. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What we are seeing here are the evidences of the significance of Jesus' death. Number one, the removal of the separation between us and God. Number two, dead people are coming back to life. Now, we're cheating because we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about the resurrection But what we see here, this is the preview of what Jesus is going to do. What we see here is that Jesus has conquered death. Death has its power because of our sin and because it is part of the curse uh, that that sin brings to us. And Jesus, his death, had paid the price and he has conquered death. More on that next week. And it's like these dead people just can't hold it in any longer. Let's go tell people. And it says that the bodies of holy people, these are saints, came out of the tomb We're not given their names. We're not told who they are. We're not even told the reaction of the people. You know, if you and I were writing this, we'd have three chapters on that one sentence right there. What did they do? What happened to them? Now, we have seen this before, right? We saw Lazarus be raised from the dead, having been in the tomb. We've seen dead people coming back to life. 
Now, let's admit it, right? We're 21st century, sophisticated Americans, and the whole idea of tombs being open and dead people coming out is kind of weird to us. But in the next chapter, Jesus is going to do it. So if Jesus can conquer, over, conquer death, why would it surprise us that his power allows others to do the same thing? Huh. The truth is, most modern, sophisticated, 21st century Americans don't believe in the resurrection. But we'll talk about that next week. Yes, Yes. What day does the high priest go into the Holy of Holies? The Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur. That's the day. That is the particular day. They still celebrate it, but they have no temple. That's kind of weird, right? So, anyway, that is the day. It's in their calendar. The, if you go back to uh, Leviticus Numbers in Deuteronomy, there's very clear instructions about their calendar. You do this on this day, you celebrate this on this day, you celebrate this and this. So yes, there is a specific day. So, yes? I don't know. We're not told who they are. All right, we are given so little information, it just unnerves me. I would want to know more. I want a list of names. And many bodies of the saints is all it says. Now, who are the saints? We know, we know that there are, were people who were correctly looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. We know that when Jesus as an infant was brought into the temple... There, was, there were people there who were waiting for him, and they knew it. We know about John the Baptist's father, who was told, your son's going to prepare the way, and he said, yea, verily. Well, he didn't say it at first. That's why God zapped him for a while, and he couldn't talk. But we know that there were righteous people looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So there were saints. There were people who were following the word of God. We also know that the Pharisees had gone berserk. More about that in just a moment. We know that organized Judaism had some other idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. So to say they were prepared would be pushing it a little bit. But there were those who were ready. Is that who came out? I don't know. We are not given a list of names. I would love to think, okay, Abraham popped out of his tomb and came wandering around, except he's buried someplace else. I would love to be able to say that, but I, have, I don't know. Anybody have any speculation? Anybody have a directory? Huh? Yes. So do these people die again? Did Lazarus die again? Probably. 
When the centurion, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. We're not real big on awe these days. Awe is holy reverence. It is what is oftentimes referred to as the fear of God. Okay? This is a centurion. We've talked about centurions because one of them came to Jesus to ask for healing for his servant. The centurions were the low-level officers in the Roman army. Centurion, a hundred guys, right? They were as tough as they come, okay? This is the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. You don't mess with them. What they say happens. I mean, yes, there are officers and there's people that are in charge of the army and all that, the the legions and all that stuff. But you don't mess with the centurion because they have been chosen because they're the toughest dudes. And he's sitting there. He's probably been in battle. He's probably been in battle on several different countries. He's been around the Roman Empire fighting these guys, these guys. He has seen everything. And here he is in charge of the detail responsible for executions. If there was ever a horrible job, that's it. He's probably ticked off because he's got this job. He's probably ticked off because he's sitting out here with this Jewish scum, his words, not mine, and he's sitting there watching this. Another Jewish wannabe hanging on a cross, dead. The Roman Empire squished another one. But then it gets dark. Wow, that's weird. Then the earth starts shaking. That's weird. All this stuff is going on, and he and his guys are going, what in the world is going on? Their language may have been a little more colorful than that. And all of a sudden, they realize, they realize what? Truly, this was the Son of God. Here we have a Gentile pagan witnessing the death of Jesus and saying, surely this was, was the Son of God. Does he understand good Christian theology? No, not at all. Does he understand good Jewish theology? No, probably not. He might have, who knows. But he understands Fear, and he understands that something is happening now that he does not understand. And he is in awe of it, and he's saying, surely there is something special about this guy. So we have the curtain in the Jewish temple being torn apart. We have dead people acknowledging the power of God through the death of Jesus. 
And now we have the Gentiles looking at it going, something's happening here. I don't know what, but something that I have never seen before. This is not the first Gentile that has come to Jesus, and it won't be the last. But he is acknowledging that he is the Christ. I have no idea. Her question is, does that make him saved? My answer would be, it gets him in the right direction. Okay? I don't know the condition of his heart. I don't. But I do know that he was ripe for the message. Three days later, when he hears about the guy being raised from the dead, does he go find out why? Maybe. I don't know. We're never told what happens to this individual. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It is interesting. We don't get a list here of 11 disciples sitting at the foot of the cross. We don't. We do know from one of the other accounts that John was there. John was there because Jesus gives John the responsibility of watching over his mother, as a good son would do to take care of his mother. We know that. But we don't get a list of, here are 11 disciples sitting at the foot of the cross. Where are they? They've left. They've run away. They're scared. But the women come to see what's going on. You do know that this has to be a horrendous event for them, as it would be for any of us. They have put their trust in Jesus for three years. Some of them have been following with him. It says that there were the disciples and that there were women who ministered to them. Some of them may have just shown up, some people get a little confused because there's too many Marys in. There's a, actually a YouTube video about, you know, somebody making up the Gospels and the editor critiquing him and saying, you've got too many Marys in this story. You've got to change their names. They've been part of this ministry. And all of a sudden, the ministry has just collapsed. Not just it fell apart, it collapsed. But the women were faithful and at least came. And when it was evening, there was, came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. We know in other accounts that they made sure he was dead, and he was dead. They then gave him to Joseph. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. He had prepared a tomb for himself. You know, 
Next week, we're going to talk about preparing for your death. That's what Joseph had done. Wrapped in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which was cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, My impression, by the way, is that Pilate's pretty ticked off at him. I mean, you're telling me you're worried about a dead guy now. First, you had me kill him, and now you're worried about his body. Whatever. That's my opinion. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, you've seen these pictures, right? Jesus is in the tomb. There's a very large rock in front of it. Probably round, probably on some kind of track that allows it to be rolled in and out. That's where Jesus is placed. There would have been a Roman guard. They would have put a seal, you know, like you seal letters. They would put a seal on that door. And it would have been a violation of Roman authority to break that seal. And then they put a Roman guard to watch it. Now, remind ourselves, these are tough dudes. What are the religious leaders worried about? They're worried that this upstart group of disciples are going to pretend that he was raised from the dead and they are going to pretend that his body has gone somewhere and they're going to cause problems. Let's be honest about this though, right? Where are the disciples? Sitting in some bar somewhere plotting the overthrow of the Roman government? I don't think so. Sitting in some cellar somewhere, planning on how they're going to get their influence and power back? I don't think so. The ones that knew how to fish have headed back up to the Sea of Galilee. They've gone home. The religious leaders are more paranoid than the faith of the disciples. The disciples have given up. We've mentioned this numerous times because I like it. I just think it is so interesting. People to this day believe that the disciples just made all this stuff up. Every one of those disciples is going to die for their faith depending on how you rate John. All the rest of them are going to die for their faith. For something that they know they made up? 
That's just nuts. I mean, we know about people who have died for false beliefs. I thought Adolf Hitler was the savior of the German people, and I died for him. But I really believed it, so I died. People die for other faiths all the time, and we believe those faiths are wrong, but they believe them to be true. Would I die if I knew that I had made the whole thing up? I think you'd have to be crazy to think that. But that's what they believe. They're going to come steal the body, and it's going to be problems for all of us. Pilate, we've got to stop them now. And Pilate says, whatever, take your guard and watch them. So there they are. There they are, watching a dead body wrapped up in a cave with a big rock, with a Roman officer, with Roman guards. And by the way, the Roman guards were not only tough, they were very strict. And one thing you didn't do is fall asleep on the job. Why? Because if you fell asleep on guard duty, they would just kill you. That's why some of the Roman soldiers, when they were marching around the camp, guard duty at night, would actually put a pebble in their foot, in their shoe, because it just hurts and it keeps you awake. Because they knew. I always thought that was weird, by the way. You know, the guard falls asleep, so you kill him. Well, what has he learned from that? (laughs) He hasn't learned anything. But I tell you what, the people have learned a lot. You probably only had to do it once a decade or so. Because the people would get the message, you're not going to fall asleep. That's who's guarding this. And we're expected to believe, oh wait, that's next week's lesson. You're expected to believe that this ragtag group of disciples, fishermen, are going to come up with their fishing poles and whack the Roman soldiers and get them out of the way? Wait, that's next week's lesson. But you know what? There is not a body of Roman soldiers ever assembled that can for one second thwart the power and will of God. All of history has been the powers trying to keep Jesus in that tomb. We're going to take everything we have can. Logic, this, that, power, influence, and we're going to use it and we're going to cram him into that tomb and we're going to shut the door, we're going to seal it and he'll never get out. But there is not a power on this earth that can keep him in that cave. And that's next week's lesson. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for tearing apart 
the curtain that separates us from God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to prepare our hearts for Easter and for the resurrection. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.